Good morning. How's everyone? Doing good? I have a, I have a name tag, but it's falling off, and I'm just going to take it off. Is that okay? I'm Robert, if we haven't met. Uh, I'm really excited to be here with you guys this morning. Um, really excited to share God's Word with you. We've been doing this Names of God series, right, um, which has been really exciting. And part of the reason we're doing that is because uh, in those stories hearing about the names of God, we see God revealing himself to us. We see who he is uh, in a way that we could not see otherwise, right? We, without God speaking to us and showing himself to us, we can't really know him. We can know his eternal power and divine nature in creation, but we can't know who he is. We can't know his heart to us. Um, and these stories are about him revealing that to us. And as we learn about that, as we begin to know him through those stories, we're able to love him better. We're able to see his love for us and respond to him, which is exactly what he wants and what we need. And it's a safety for us too, I think. There's a kind of safety in that because the world has all sorts of opinions about who God is, right? They have all sorts of things to say about him about what he would do and what he wouldn't do and what he would say and what he wouldn't say. And that's kind of what we've been doing in the fall, right? We were doing reset and talking about um, some deceptions that the world believes about who God is. And now we're going into the names of God and talking about the positive things about who God is and who he really is. And that's a safety for us because it helps us to obey the third commandment, which is not to take the Lord's name in vain, which typically people hear that commandment and they think, oh, it's about cursing, right? It's about saying bad words. It's a small part of it. Taking God's name in vain means saying that God is someone who he isn't. It means saying that God is for something that he's not for or that he's against something that he's not against. It means speaking about God rightly. And I really love that word that Stephanie gave this morning um, about protecting our children and we need truth now. We need to know who God is, who he really is, who he's revealed to us. And the stories of the names of God are a little bit weird. Like, we went through Yahweh two weeks ago, which is God saying his name, right? I am. Um, when he's talking to Moses, I am has, has sent you to them. And uh, after that, we start to get these names that are more like titles than actual names. Like, we talked about God as provider last week. This week, we're going to talk about God as healer. So he gives himself a title and says, here's how you should know me which is a little bit weird to like give yourself a title, it feels like to me. Like if I went up to you and was like, hey, I'd really like for you to refer to me as um, chancellor from now on. Like maybe supreme chancellor would be nice. Like, so, you know, any, any future correspondence, please go ahead and address me, you know, supreme chancellor. And after that, sir is fine. Um, and then, you know, at the end, supreme chancellor again, or, you know, any, any conversations we're having, please go ahead and do it. It's just weird, right? It's pretentious. It's like, why, why are you giving yourself a title to me? Um, but God can do that, and he should do that, because he is creator. We're just creation. We're just change in his pocket, but he is the creator, and we need to know who he really is. So that's what these, these stories and these titles are about. And it's about getting back to the foundation of who God is, of who Jesus is. We need to know Jesus. Jesus, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The same God who revealed these names and these titles to us is Jesus. As we learn about that, we're learning who Jesus is. We're learning to get to know 
who the voice of God is, what the voice of God is. So that's what our series is. We're, we're wanting to know him. Um, and that's our little graphic this week for looking at God as healer. Um, but we want to know the voice of the shepherd, right? Jesus says in John, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. If there's one thing that I get wrong in my walk with God, I think it's that. I mistake the voice of strangers for the voice of God. I think oh, this thing is happening in my life and it's really good and it was kind of unexpected and so that must be God. And I think, oh, this other thing is, is not so great. It's not going well. That must not be God. That's the way the world thinks, judging things by whether it's successful or not. That's how the world works. That's not how God works. His voice is different. He might be doing something through the difficult thing. He might not be doing something through something that appears to be good. His voice is different. And so we want to get to know him. We want to get to know his voice. We need to know his voice. So that's where we're going today. We're going to be looking at God as healer. Um, and it might be a little bit different than what you're expecting when you hear the word healer. When I hear healer, I think of physical healing, right? I think of Elijah or Elisha or Jesus or the apostles, you know, touching somebody and then being healed of blindness or a broken bone or being raised to life, someone being raised from the dead, right? It's going to be a different kind of healing today, um, but I'm really excited about it. I think God's going to show us something really cool about who he is and about who he is to us specifically. So we've got Roger Maddox praying for us, and I don't know where Roger's sitting, right, right here. I give this to you. Oh, you got one already. Never mind. Am I on? I'm on, yeah. Father, we thank you, God, for your faithfulness. Thank you, God, that you are here with us, Lord. As Stephanie said, you're, you're just right here. We just thank you for your presence with us. Thank you, God, that you reveal yourself. I just, uh, just pray for Robert, Lord, that as you have spoken to him, that, that your words would speak through him to us. Give us hearts to hear your voice, God, and that it is different than what we expect. Thank you, God, that you continue to meet us each and every day, each and every moment you are with us, Lord. Help us to hear. And just pray for Robert, God, to, to speak your truth with boldness, to speak the word that you have given to him, and that your words would come from his mouth. We thank you, God, for uh, who you've created him to be. And Lord, we just thank you for uh, your faithfulness to him, Lord, in that. Just pray for uh, the Advent Anglican Church here in Bellevue and uh, Father Aaron Burt. God, I just pray that you would bless uh, their congregation, that you would be with them, that you would speak truth through uh, Aaron. And I just pray, God, for uh, your blessing to flow to all the churches in Bellevue, in Washington, in this country and in this world, Lord. Your church would be uh, built up today, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Roger. So today we are in Exodus 15. Uh, we're going to step back a few chapters from where we were two weeks ago when we looked at, um, I'm sorry, if, if, I guess a, it's ahead a few chapters, rather, um, from where we were two weeks ago when looking at Moses and the burning bush. So 
Moses has come and he has spoken to Pharaoh and Pharaoh wouldn't let the people go. God brought the plagues and God brought them out. And he brings them out through the Red Sea. The, the Israelites walk through on dry land and he destroys the Egyptian army, the most powerful army on the face of the earth at that time in the known world. And this unknown people group comes out and is saved by that. They're brought out of slavery. They're set free. And that is sort of like a salvation experience for us, right? When you first meet God, when you first have an experience of him, you first come to know him, you're set free. I was blind, but now I see. That's what they're going through. They're like, we were in slavery two weeks ago, and then God came, and all these plagues happened, and we walked through an ocean, and like, here we are. What just happened? This is amazing. And we're going to look. Um, this is uh, the song that they sing right after that. It says, that will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. And that's sort of what it feels like when you first get saved, right? There's that joy of it. That's what they're going through. And then the story we're looking at today is the very first thing that happens after that. Right after they come through the Red Sea is where we're going to be looking today. So this is from Exodus 15. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and you do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elam, where there are twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. Kind of a crazy story, right? This is the first thing that happens to them after they are set free, after they're set free from slavery and after they're saved, essentially. And they come to these waters and they are literally undrinkable. You know, they're, they're, they're filthy or poisonous or something and they can't drink the water. The water is bitter. That's what that word Mara means, is bitter. But it's, a, it's more than just bitter. It's, there's something about it that is almost poisonous is really what's going on there. And I don't like Mara. <laughs> I don't like testing. Similar to how we saw, you know, Abraham being tested last week. I don't, I don't want to be tested. Charles Spurgeon has this great sermon called Mara Better Than Elam. Mara is these bitter waters that they come to. And of course, Elam is this plentiful place that they come to afterwards. After they go through the trial, they come to this place where they have plenty of water and shade. That's a great thing, Right? But you can't learn who God is there. For that, you have to go to Mara. And this, really, this word really means something to the Israelites. We see it again in the story of Ruth. When uh, Naomi goes, she goes into this other land with her husband and her two sons during their famine, and her sons get married, and then both her sons die and her husband dies. And she comes back home, and she has nothing. She's basically poor and destitute. She's going to die alone because she, can't even, she doesn't have a claim to her own property anymore because her husband has died. And this is what she says. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, 
for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It's a strong thing to say, right? It's not just this is something bad that's happening to me. This is what God is doing right now, as he's bringing this bitterness, this emptiness. I know I'm a relatively young guy, and I'm very conscious of the fact that I'm speaking to a room of people who are mostly my senior. And I could tell you some trite little story about some suffering that I went through and how God worked in it, and it would be meaningful. It's been meaningful to me. It's obviously been significant to me, what he's done in my life. But I think you guys know what Mara is like. I think you've been there. I know many of you have. Some of us have grumbled at Mara, right? And there's some of you who have been there more than once, maybe many times. And you don't grumble anymore because you know something. You know him. You know him who is from the beginning. I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. You know that you're dependent on him in every circumstance, not just when you're at Mara. When you're at Elam too, you know that all good things come from God. You've been through that so many times, it does, it's second nature to you, right? That's what he's teaching us about, him, about himself here at Mara. But the Israelites don't know that yet, right? They've just been saved. They've just come out of captivity. This is their first experience of who God is. And he's teaching them something about himself there. The people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. He's teaching them that he answers when we cry out. They don't know what to do. They're thinking, we've come through this place. You know, we've, we had three days without any water. Our children didn't have any water. Our livestock didn't have any water. Two long nights, not being sure what to tell our kids about when they're going to get a drink next. This is, a, this is a really serious thing. And then they come to this water Finally, there's hope, and then you can't drink it. What do you do in that moment? All we can do is cry out to God, and when we do, he answers. But maybe not in the way that we would expect, right? This is kind of an unusual thing for God to do, and it's different from what he does in a lot of other stories in you know, Leviticus and Exodus and Numbers. In a lot of other stories, when they need water, he gives them water from a rock, Right? That happens a couple of times. He, he takes them to some place where there, there wasn't any water, and then he brings water out of nothing. He's not doing that here. He's doing something very different. He's saying, here is this bitter, undrinkable, poisonous water, and I'm going to make that sweet. I'm going to take bitter and turn it to sweet. I'm going to take evil itself and turn it into good. I'm not just going to take you to some other good over here. I'm going to take that very evil and make it something good. And then he gives this uh, rule, if you will, to them. If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. What? You're my healer because you're not going to put a disease on me. You're my healer because you're not going to make me sick? That seems a little bit backwards, a little bit unusual. I don't really like the message that's being communicated there. 
And I think it's maybe because we're not totally understanding what he's saying there. How many diseases did the Egyptians actually get put on them? I can only think of one. Boils. They had boils breaking out on their skin, everything else. Everything else was not a disease on their bodies, per se. So maybe God is talking about something bigger than just a disease, right? He's talking about you know, all the things that happened to them, all these plagues, and all the things that were, were going on there. And he's saying, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm going to treat you differently than I treated them because I'm your healer. I'm different with you than I was with them, which is such an interesting thing, right? And then as I was thinking about that, I realized, what's the very first plague that the Egyptians go through? The very first thing that, that God does, he takes the Nile, which has been this source of strength for them. You know, they're, they're in this desert land and they've got this river. They've got, they can farm, they can irrigate, they can fish. Nobody else around them can do that. This is what's making them strong. And he takes that very thing and he turns it to blood. He makes their water undrinkable. All the fish in it die. It's the exact opposite of what he does with Israel. With Israel, he turns bitter to sweet. But with Egypt, it's sweet to bitter. And there's a reason for that. It's, part of it is, you know, God is different with his particular people. He's different with us, with the children of faith, right? We, we're the same as Israel in that circumstance. Is, Egypt just kind of represents everyone else to some degree. But they're the strongest nation on the face of the earth, and God made them that way. God gave that to them. Joseph came in, and Joseph was second in command in Egypt, right? And God brought him in, and God gave him basically what was going to happen for 14 straight years. He says, here's, here's what the future is. There's going to be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, and the Egyptians know exactly what to do to take perfect advantage of that. It's like knowing, being told exactly what the stock market is going to do for the next 14 years. If you aren't a billionaire at the end of that, you're doing something wrong. <laughs> you know? And Egypt becomes the most powerful nation on the face of the planet. But there's something wrong. And we see this in the midst of all the plagues and everything. How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? You are still exalting yourself. That's what God says to Pharaoh in that time. He won't acknowledge God. They've forgotten that God was the source of all their strength. They forgot that God was who they were dependent on. That God was the one who gave them everything that they had. And with Israel, he's giving them a choice. Are you going to listen to me? Are you going to follow me? Are you going to be dependent on me? in the way that you need to be, in the way that is true and right? Because we are dependent. We're always dependent all the time. I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. That's the truth of it, right? We need him all the time. But they forgot. And so he's asking them as he is asking us, are we going to listen? Are we going to be dependent on him? And if we will be, he turns bitter to sweet. He turns evil to good. The very thing which was going to kill you becomes life to you. And even more than that, he takes the ordinary things, the dull things, the mundane things, and he makes them rich and full. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
but you've kept the good wine until now. That's the opposite of the way of the world. In the, way, in, in the world, you, you get as much as you can, as early as you can, and then it's all just kind of downhill from there, right? That's how it works. With God, he saves the best for last. He takes the way things are and he flips it on its head. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. That's what he does with Naomi too. The woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. She doesn't die destitute and poor and alone. She's redeemed. She has a family again. She has descendants again. It's, it's Ruth's child, but they say a child has been born to Naomi. This is, this is your descendant, is who this is. And I, I learned something really interesting just last night. I didn't know this before. Naomi means sweet. She wanted to be called bitter because that was her experience. That was what she was, she was, she went from sweet to bitter. And God took her from bitter back to sweet. That's who he is. That's who he is to us. That's, that should be our experience of him. And not just in circumstances, but even when circumstances aren't good. And I think a lot of the time our reaction to things is based on the circumstances. If things are going well, things are good. And if they're not, I'm not. There's a really helpful um, chart or metaphor, a way to think about uh, our experience of God and where we are with him. And it's actually in your packets. There's a little folded piece of paper in there and you can go pull that out. And ushers, if you could make sure people have those if they're missing one, if you can look on with somebody next to you. But this is a chart from Tim Keller, who's a pretty well-known pastor and author. And I just want to go through this and ask yourself, where are you in this? Are you on the left side or the right side? Are you on the side of man-made religion? Are you living in the gospel? Are you living in the freedom of what God is doing, of what Christ is doing? So just let the Holy Spirit speak to you, and we're just going to go through this. Religion says, you know, man-made religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. My motivation is based on fear and insecurity. I obey God in order to get things from God. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe, like Job's friends, that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. When I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it's essential for me that I think of myself as a good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. My prayer life consists largely of petition and it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is to control circumstances. My self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to standards, I feel insecure and inadequate. I'm not confident. I feel like a failure. My identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am, so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or moral. I disdain and feel superior to others. Since I look to my pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my head manufactures idols, talents, moral records, personal discipline, social status. I absolutely have to have them. So they are my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I may say, I believe about God. 
that's the way things are without Jesus. That's the way things are without the cross. How does God heal the water? He showed Moses a, or yeah, he showed Moses a log or a tree, maybe one that they would have even had to cut down. And they throw that into the water and it becomes sweet. It's the cross. The cross is what makes the water sweet. The cross is what turns evil to good, what turns need into plenty. The cross is what redeems everything. And when that's true for us, we can live on the other side of this chart, which says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. My motivation is based on grateful joy. I obey God to get God, to delight and resemble him. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. When I'm criticized, I struggle, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with him. My self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and lost, yet accepted. I'm so bad he had to die for me, and I'm so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time, without either sniveling or swaggering. My identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, including me. Only by sheer grace am I what I am, so I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. I have no inner need to win arguments. I have many good things in my life, family, work, but none of these good things are ultimate things to me. I don't absolutely have to have them, so there's a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despair they can inflict on me when they're threatened and lost. That's where I want to live. I don't want how well I'm doing to be dependent on my circumstances. I want to know who God is, whether I'm at Mara or at Elam. Because there's going to be times where both. If you haven't been to Mara yet, you will be there at some point. If you haven't been to Elam yet, you will be at some point. He takes us to both. But Mara is where we learn who he is. Mara is where we see God healing, taking evil and turning it to good. Hebrews 12 talks a little bit about this and what we should do when we're at Mara. It says, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which we've all participated, you're illegitimate children and not sons. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, and here's where we, the, the action words, this is what we should do. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Can God heal something that is continuously in, in a bad way? Like if you're, I don't know, if you're walking incorrectly and you're hurting your hip or your knee or something, God can heal it, but if you're still walking incorrectly, the problem is it's going to come back, right? For him to heal it, he has to set it. He has to set the joint so it can heal properly. If it doesn't, it's going to heal incorrectly. It's going to be worse than it was before. And the only way he can fix that problem is to break it again and set it and let it heal correctly. We need, 
We have to, to be paying attention to what God is doing, to pay attention to the trials in our lives. If we just let him be a trial, I'm just gonna get through it no matter what. Eventually, I'll get through to the other side. He can't heal us. The circumstances will get better eventually, sure. But you won't be healed. I wanna be healed. I wanna live on the right side of that chart. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It doesn't last forever. It isn't forever. If we embrace the cross, if we embrace what Jesus is doing, if we look for what he's doing in the middle of the trial, in the middle of the good things too, we can be healed. We can take hold of it. We can cry out to him and see what he's doing. It may not be what we expect. We may not get water from a rock. He may just turn the very thing which is going to kill you into life and joy. If that's something new for you this morning, or if you've fallen back into thinking the way the world thinks, if you find yourself on the left side of the chart in a lot of areas, I know I do. It's not good. I want to be on the right side. Embrace the cross today. And there's a really practical way we can do that. We're going to take communion. And I actually want to offer a kind of guideline for taking communion today, which is, and please don't read judgment or condemnation into what I'm saying because it's so far from that. It's, a, it's an invitation. If this is not something you want, you want to have in your life, if you don't want to live on the right side of the chart, don't take communion. If you, if you are not sure that this is the life that you want, don't partake. But if you want that life, if you want to take hold of that, if you want that to be your experience with God, no matter what, this is life for us. This is us proclaiming his death until he comes and the joy of that, the incredible power that the cross has to turn bitter itself into sweet.